With nearly every success, there is a line of failures and setbacks, sometimes a very long line. Many of those stories get condensed into pithy journeys that minimize the struggle. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azalay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about triumph and disaster that Mark's guests faced and how they overcame the adversity to shine. Now, here's your host, Mark Azalay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm honored to sit here with Rick Tivers. This man blew my mind at one of the AGPA conferences, uh, one of the conferences that I met an earlier guest, Jeff, Grof- Jeff Grossman, at. I took one of his workshops called Utilizing Group Therapy in Corporate Settings, which sounds, you know, kind of stale, kind of like run-of-the-mill, something that I want to expand into in my practice. Okay, fast forward four hours into this workshop, this man has four women pinning me down and telling me that I have to fight them to get up, okay? (laughs) He blew my mind with the type of stuff that he's bringing out into the world. He's utilizing psychodrama. And Rick, tell us some more about that. Like, Sure, sure. Do you do that? You do that with companies? So, yeah. So, I'm brought in... I'm brought into companies. First of all, it's an honor to be here, Mark. Thank you for the invitation. I I really feel honored and and grateful. I'm brought into companies where uh, often executives could be inappropriate with certain other executives, other employees, or they're simply stuck. And what I picked up with you, Mark, if I can share, is that some of your issues with women, you felt controlled by women. And we can do a lot of head work about our own control issues, but I think you need to experience it physically. That's why I had the women that you felt would control you, hold you down and do rage work that you felt controlled by women over, over your life. And so that, that's what that process work is, was about using psychodrama. Yeah, it was a very powerful experience. Something that like, you know, stuck with me for months afterwards. And I initially contacted you to learn more about that, to uh-huh. get some mentorship and eventually to get therapy, because I highly respect the the seeing that you have is incredible. I remember during Thank that you. workshop that you would listen to people and you would just like laser focus into mm. them well, and thank say you. like the one sentence that they needed to hear or that, or even that they were afraid of hearing. And it really cracked people wide open. Well, par- part of my, my passion with people is I crave people being seen. So many people I, I treat in psychotherapy have felt unseen by authority, parents, teachers, and I, I really make it my mission to see people. And it's amazing the magic that can happen when people feel seen and understood. A lot of people believe they've got to be agreed with. Not necessarily, as long as you're seen and understood. And actually healthy confrontations come out of that. Yeah. So I imagine that superpower had to be born somewhere. So we're here on the podcast to talk about the From the Ashes story, right? A story where you were knocked down, you had to come back up, become stronger, learn lessons along the way. What story do you have to share with our listeners? Uh, Okay. So um, my current life, let me just start with that. Uh, I live in Evanston, uh, Illinois, which is right next to Chicago. We also have a place in Palm Springs, California. I have three kids, and there's lots of therapists in my my family. My son's a therapist. His wife's a therapist. My other son's an engineer. His wife's a therapist. And my daughter works with with special needs kids. And I had my own journey of creating a lot of darkness for myself. Um, I grew up in a Jewish household, one of three brothers, the youngest brother by far. And my mom died on my 15th birthday. 
So loss has been an issue for me. And I was always into baseball. Baseball has been very significant for me. And I share that because I could walk into Wrigley Field, literally, and I start bawling. I'm a huge Cub fan, so I know depression very well because of that uh, <laughs> up until two, you know X number of years ago. But I say that for a reason. Um, I was in a, baseball, a high school baseball team, but even when I was in Little League, uh, we had an incident where we were changing into our clothes, into our uniforms, and I realized I really enjoyed looking at these other guys. I, I enjoyed looking at these boys, and I realized, quite frankly, I was aroused then that, oh, my God, I may be gay. And I played baseball and hid that sexuality. And when my mom died, I told myself, I really can't be gay. She wouldn't approve of it. My family wouldn't approve of it. So I played the role of straight kid. I've been told I'm very straight acting, whatever that means. Anyhow, so um, groups have always been a part of my life. And one of the groups I did was I was a camp counselor for many years. And my first gay relationship came out of a camping experience. We had a, uh, an encounter group as part of a staff training which was really cool. And I developed an attraction to the one, to one of the guys. He was also quote, very straight acting. And we became really good friends. And it was my first gay sex. And quite frankly, it felt right. It felt natural. I felt authentic for the first time. Anyhow, we were together about six months. People knew us just as good friends. And we were supposed to go on a canoeing trip. And the same, same weekend of this canoeing trip, my oldest brother, Jerry, was getting married. So I went to my brother's wedding, and it was the same day of my canoeing trip. My friend went on his canoeing trip by himself, and when he was in the water, a boat hit him, he got killed. Oh. I took that as a message from God not to mess around with the gay stuff. And between my mother's loss and my birthday... And my friend's loss, I, I thought that to be gay was to be punished. So I dated women heavily, led a very private, closet life, a life I was not proud of. And I married a woman that I set myself up to be in a, an abusive relationship. Now, I want to be really clear about something. It may sound like I'm blaming my ex-wife for abuse. I helped set this up. I knew the kind of woman she was the third or fourth date. So that's on me. I am not blaming her. I felt I should marry an abusive person because I was to be punished for being gay. Now, please understand, I've done a lot of growth work, a lot of therapy, a lot of 12-step work. I no longer believe that. It's where I was at. Well, we had three kids, and I'll never forget when my daughter was two years old, um, I ex-wife had a rage attack, and I told myself 16 more years and I can leave because abandonment is so significant for me in my life, I would not abandon my kids. So I waited until my kids were in college and finishing high school, and then I got divorced. And that's when I came out and started seeing men, and it felt right. Well, I was a pretty crappy husband. I was a very poor husband sexually because I was a gay man. So every time I had sex with my ex-wife, and this is on me, not her, I was betraying her and myself, and it was traumatic for me. Every time I had sex with my ex-wife, I would get nauseous. It would feel what's called ego dystonic. I was doing the wrong thing, or eventually I couldn't function. And her way of, of 
you know, not dealing with it would to be rageful, vengeful, angry, shaming, which I felt I deserved because I betrayed her and I was a gay man closeted. So what happened with me then is I had to make sure that I was okay sexually. So it's not untypical when a gay man comes out to hook up with as many guys as possible. And my self-esteem was then helped develop by hooking up with as many guys as possible. I would walk down Michigan Avenue, get eye contact with, with a guy, often married, usually doctor, lawyer, other professional, and we'd hook up. And every time I did that, I had two feelings. One from euphoria, like, wow, I'm wanted. I'm feeling validated. I'm needed. I'm loved, which was all false. To tremendous shame afterwards. And it got to be to the point where I walked down Michigan Avenue, and I'm not saying this like I'm proud of it, because I'm really not, that I would hook up with three to five guys a week, sometimes once, twice a day. Because, again, I told myself, this is what all gay men do. And I developed a pretty severe sex addiction. And that really impacted me in a very negative way, to say the least. So that's a little bit of my story. Um, my sex addiction was so out of control that I went to rehab because I do practice what I preach. When I treat other addicts, I'll develop a recovery program for them. And I went to rehab center in Texas for impaired professionals, stayed there three or three and a half months, came back and began my practice again, and really went through some major changes. And I'm a recovering sex addict. I've been in recovery since 2009, and I've been clean and sober since my sex addiction. These days, I'm married to an amazing man. I love him very much. We've got a very solid relationship. I'm out and open in the world with my kids. Um, and I feel blessed. I feel grateful. So that's a little bit of my story, Mark. Yeah, that's a really powerful story. And there's so many yeah. incredible themes there just of, you know, punishment and secrets and knowing that there's this part of you that you couldn't express, you yes. know, and then this whiplash effect that you're talking about of when you do finally come out, just diving full force into it, but also with this, yeah, feelings of shame and, and guilt that are still lingering. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a whirlwind, man. Yeah, it's, and if ever I do something bad or inappropriate, the shame comes back. An example, if, if a cop stops me for a ticket, my shame will surface like I've done really bad things again, and it's a ticket, and it's all it is, of course. So it's, it's, it's taking a lot of work on my behalf um, from self-degradation and really internal confrontation to, to really some self-nurturing, self-care, self-love, and really apologizing to myself besides making amends to my family and those people I've hurt. Yeah. You know, I'm interested if you're willing to go there, take a step back to when you're in the relationship with your ex-wife sure, and you're hiding that, what was your internal dialogue like? I mean, what was that punishment like? It seems like a real, talk about the ashes on the show, a real place of just hell, of just suffering. Like, did, did anyone know you were gay? Did, were you able to admit to yourself? I mean, what was that long amount of time, you know? I always admitted it to myself. I always okay. knew. Um, yeah. Yet, when we would have an argument, 
And I believe in healthy confrontation. I love healthy, direct, appropriate confrontation. I hate abuse. And this, you know, brings up shame. I was an abused husband. Again, I helped to create that. Please hear that. I was a co-creator. Yet every time I was abused, I felt I deserved it. Until one day I realized I didn't deserve it. Um, and that's taken a lot of, a lot of work for me to, to work on. Um, you know, I talk to my clients, look at the part of us that are so self-critical. I call us our inner, inner bitter, inner bastard with the criticisms we give to ourselves and the negative messages yet to our friends and loved ones, we'll give opposite messages of love, support, and nurturance and holding on to other people. Yeah. I mean, I can really relate with that. Just the amount of self-hatred that can come out is staggering. You know, like I had a similar thing, not about, you know, being gay, but about being bullied, about not fitting in, about being overweight, just a lot of self-hatred and every day, you know, every day looking in the mirror and being like, I hate this person, you know, taking actions to self-sabotage, taking actions to dissociate, to numb out. I mean, it is such a painful place to be in. And I'm, I don't want to tell you this, but so many people are in it. Like yeah. so many people live in that their whole lives. Yeah. And, and the, the part of it that, that for me was so terrible was the loneliness, the loneliness and the, the obsessive thoughts uh, about what a piece of crap I was. And uh, I no longer believe that. Thank God. Did a lot of healing work, a lot of groups for myself, some solid therapy, um, but it's, it's a journey. It is an absolute journey. And I feel blessed these days. My, my husband, I can share some, some of my painful thoughts, and he is just so loving and supportive. And, and I no longer believe those thoughts. Thank God. They don't last as long. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about your healing journey? Did that start sure. with the rehab, or were you doing anything before then? Um, I'm a, so I love group. Good group is worth every dollar spent, bad groups are a waste of time and money as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, I joined a men's group years and years ago at where I first came out. And when I came out to these men, I felt, and these were straight men, except for one other guy, I felt loved, I felt accepted, I felt validated. And for me to be able to share my story and feel held is so healing. And that's why in my clinical work with people, I want people to feel held by me and seen and, and understood. There, there's, I don't know, if there, I run a men's group in my practice these days. And when we talk about our dark side, a lot of people want to want to run away. They get upset the group is only three hours. They want to be four or five hours when we talk about our dark side. And it's so healing because there's acceptance that it's okay to talk about. Yeah, that is one of the things that really attracted me to you and the work that you do is how willing and courageous you're able to go into those darker sides. I mean, even in the way you're telling the story, I mean, to admit that, you know, yeah, you were abused, but you also played a role in that is a huge. lot of huge yeah. amount of courage and a huge amount of honesty, quite frankly. Thank you. To be like, it's it's a relationship, right? There's two people. Well, and, and I have issues with therapists, the way some therapists treat men. A lot of therapists will immediately go, tell me how you feel. Well, a lot of men can't deal with that. We've got what I'll do in my work with men. Tell me, what's your reaction to this? Tell me about your pain. Tell me what you experience. If a therapist gets too feely touchy with men at first, it pushes men away. They can't process that. 
I know that was my story too. Like, they're like, what do you feel? It's like, I don't know, like hungry, tired, <laughs> pissed off, you know, dead, right? right? right. Just like numb. Um, and I would, that increased the shame. So I was like, oh, this is like, I should be able to answer this question. Yeah. But I can't. So I've got some clinical stories I guess I'll share after the break. You tell me, are we okay? How much time do we have before our break, Mark? If you can share that or are we oh, okay? About, about two minutes or so. I'll, I'll keep so, you when we're moving. So I, I had, I had uh, one man in my um, men's group and the men's group is all straight guys, also severe sex addict. And I had him held by the men in the group. First, and he's been with the group two years, so he trusted the men. They're like brothers to him. And all of a sudden, his group was holding him. He burst into tears, burst into tears. He goes, this is why I sought out uh, sex. This is why I'm a sex addict. I simply want to be held. I'm not getting aroused. There's no sexual energy, but I'm feeling loved by my brothers. This is all I wanted. And it was just, it, you know, special moments like that. When we look at the healing uh, healing times that are magical and necessary. I believe in corrective experiences in therapy on a regular basis that I'll talk more about a little bit later. Yeah, that's very moving just to be moving towards intimacy and to moving to be held when you're feeling weak or you're feeling needy, right? Yes. I think you've talked about men, right? Like we don't get that. We really don't get that. We're, we're, we're fed the opposite message, right? Of like, suck it up, right? Like, don't be a bitch. Don't be a pussy. Like, get out there, fight. You shouldn't have any feelings. Desiring to be held is like very taboo. Well, the other, and I'm reactive to that word even needy. A lot of times, oh, you shouldn't be so needy. And what I tell people, we're needful. We are needful. And let's honor that needfulness. It's how we acted out that's so important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Like it's all, it's all labeled for men. And we're told that we're not supposed to have needs or that we're supposed to always be strong or always be confident. Uh, it's a real disservice. And it's something that I think is increasingly getting talked about, but still not really enough, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I help men and women put their needs out in a way that we could be heard, in a way that could be heard. But yeah. yes. So we'll talk more about that uh, as we return from our commercial break. Before we go, I just want to say, you know, take a look at us on social media, check us out on Facebook, um, check us out on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You can find me at Mark M. Azule at everything. Uh, we'd love to hear the conversation. If this is stirring anything from your story, from your past, if you feel connected to the themes that we're talking about here, uh, we want to hear from you. We want to know that this um, show is having an impact. So stay tuned as we go into our first commercial break and we'll rejoin with Rick right afterwards. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are the experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, 
or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azalay.teachable.com. That's Mark, M-A-R-C-Azalay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, .teachable.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azalay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azalay.com. Now back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azulay, and I'm sitting down with Rick Tivers. In the first segment, he was sharing an incredible story about being a closeted gay man in a relationship and having to come to that realization, keeping that secret, then acting out, becoming a sex addict, going to rehab. And since integrating that and doing incredibly powerful work with his clients um, around the darker side of the reality and around accepting these you know, hard to accept truths, um, if you're just tuning in now, definitely go back and listen to the beginning. It was a very evocative, um, powerful story. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here moved by it. Thank you, Mark. Rick, I, one of the topics that we talked about is this idea of secrets, you know, and mm-hmm. how secrets can really control people and in some ways how they controlled you until they get aired out, until they get exposed. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What, what are your thoughts on secrets? What was that like for you to hold that for such a long amount of time? Well, I don't consider myself a paranoid guy, yet I was constantly concerned about having to fit in. And, and, you know, one thing I didn't share, which I, I, I feel terrible about, but I remember being on the high school baseball team and some of the guys were doing some gay bashing. And I joined them because I wanted to be part of the group. And uh, I feel horrific about it now. Um, and these days I'm very active in gay rights. Uh, my husband and I are uh, very active in Lambda Legal. Uh, my husband's in the board of directors and we contribute a lot, but it's, yeah, I was one of those gay bachelors that this part of my, my dark side that I'm not uh, proud about, to say the least, because my desire to fit in superseded everything. I crave fitting in, crave fitting in. Um, so no secrets. I, I constantly felt paranoid. What if people knew? And these days I'm a, an out proud gay man. Um, and there are no secrets. And uh, one thing I can easily say is I have no secrets to my husband. And in the gay world, uh, we have different boundaries. Uh, I can flirt with other guys and other guys can flirt with me. We talk about it. There's no shame or jealousy. And just to be free, it feels wonderful. So, yeah, secrets is very destructive, say the least. Yeah. Tell me more about your relationship, because just the idea of having no secrets from a partner or a spouse, it's powerful. And I think it's very rare and very special to be able to do that, to, ha- to really practice that full transparency. And from what I know about you and your relationship, I have no doubt that you're doing that. 
But w- what is that like? Like, what are the ups and downs of taking that approach to uh, authenticity? So I, yeah, I'll, so I'll share a quick story because my husband, his name is Richard also, um, we were dating three months and I surprised him with a weekend downtown at a nice hotel. And we had a great time and I didn't tell about my sex addiction yet. And we're in bed and we're talking and I shared a lot of my stories about sex addiction. And he was quiet. He was just quiet. And I thought, well, tomorrow would be the last time I'll see this guy or something positive could happen. Who knows? But I knew I couldn't keep that secret. He woke up the very next morning, grabbed my face. I'll never forget this. And said, Rick, you're one of the most resilient people I've ever met. I want to make this work. And I trust you. Wow. For a recovering addict to hear that he's trusted, as you see, is, 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 is amazing. And I have no secrets from him because of that. If I'm flirting with someone, if, I, if uh, something's coming on to me, we're at a gay bar, we talk about it. And there's zero jealousy. And, and I don't have to keep it as a secret. And we have certain boundaries, which I'll just... I'm not going to share all of our relationship issues, of course, but we talk about things openly without shame, without jealousy, and it feels wonderful. It's the opposite of how I was in my marriage and, and past relationships too. But on that, I, I need to acknowledge my husband a lot because he constantly reinforces vulnerability and truth, and we both do that for each other, and that's a gift we give to each other. Yeah, I know. He sounds like a real special guy he to is, be able to, to go there and just to model that unconditional love which as you were talking about for many addicts and you and me, that's what we want at the end of the day is just to be accepted, to feel like we belong, to feel like we're seen, to feel like people are interested in us, right. That are curious in us and want to know who we are, even in the parts that we're not that proud of. I mean, it's a miraculous experience to be able to have that. Well, you know, it's also, so we've also talked about secrets. Let me talk about uh, internalized homophobia for a second. Uh, It's sort of a cute story. Um, I will often cap an attitude that if I see somebody being homophobic, I want to talk to them about it. Not like in a rageful way, but it's really an educational way. So two quick stories, I think they're sort of cute. Richard and I were at a festival in Chicago, and this woman kept on staring at us. Now, one thing I didn't share uh, about my husband, my husband's African-American. He's a black man. And so Richard and I were holding hands somewhere in this festival, and this woman kept on staring at us. And in my mind, she was capping an attitude like, look at this black, white, gay couple. And, and I felt a lot of negative energy. I walked up to her and I said, excuse me, is, is, there, is there a problem? She goes, oh, I know I was staring at you. You guys are such a cute couple. Let me introduce <laughs> you to my, to my partner. So again, I was projecting my own fears that had nothing to do with her. It was my own internalized homophobia. So th- 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 that's one story. The other story, and this I often tell when I used to teach um, uh, diversity uh, in other, other classes at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, um, group therapy, organizational development, a whole, whole bunch of classes, and I often share this story. I was in Target one day in my neighborhood, and I'm looking at some sporting equipment, and there were apparently two effeminate gay men uh, strolling in another aisle. And this one guy comes up to me about 22, 24 years old. And he goes, look at those, look at those fags. Ooh. And I'm just listening. And I'm just, I'm looking at some sporting equipment. 
and I'm not really responding to him. And he approached me because oh, I can't stand guys like that. You know, look at them just prancing around. And I'm just listening. And I'm thinking, okay, if this were me from 15, 20 years ago, I'd rage at the guy, which would do nothing. Or I could think, or I can have this as an educational experience. So I said, hey, you know, you want to grab a, a, a pop at the, you know, the car target has a little refreshment area. He said, oh, sure. What are you, a shrink or something? I said, well, actually I am. So we, I said, what's your reaction to those guys? Oh, I can't stand those guys. Look at them. I said, you know what? I used to feel the same way. And he high fives me. Oh, it's cool, man. We're, we're bonding. I said, you know, but what I actually, these days I'm jealous of them. He goes, what? I said, yeah, they're so authentic. They're living their lives. They're, they're prancing. They're, they're showing their sensitive side, their effeminate side. Good for them. I wish I had the balls to do that myself. Because what are you talking about? Because, well, what if I were gay? Because, no, man, you're straight. I know you're, look, you're, you're looking at, uh, at the sporting equipment. I said, yeah, I got three kids. He goes, oh, yeah, I knew you were straight. I said, oh, and I also like doing, then I'm not going to show what I like doing, because I, I don't think it would be appropriate for this program here. But I, I, I told him, yes, I'm gay. And, and he thought I was lying. Then I showed him a picture of my husband. He goes, oh, my God. I didn't know gay looks like this. I said, yeah, gay does look like this. And... You may be a part of yourself that doesn't want to be seen like that. So you may want to look at that. And we ended the conversation. It was it. But I'm so aware if this were me years ago, I would have absolutely aligned with him and really degraded those other two gay, gay men and myself. So th th that's almost like a full circle type story. Yeah, I really like that story. It's such a powerful image. And yeah, it just brings up the theme, right, of how we can abandon ourselves and abandon one community to belong to another one, especially one, you know, like the straight white community that has more power in some ways, yes. right? That, that is higher status on the totem pole. Um, I can imagine that you'd want to fit in and not be bullied or not be shamed for being who you were. Yeah. And then with my relation, my husband, I've learned more, so much more about white privilege and the times I felt discriminated against as, as, as a white privileged uh, gay man, uh, that's a little drop in the bucket to, compared to what uh, my husband and his race has been through, especially his gay friends. And uh, I've had some, some real strong learning experiences. painful for me to look at the part of me, my racist side. And he's been an absolute gift and so tolerant of things I've had to learn. Yeah. How does that play out? You know, my assumption, you can correct me, of Chicago is that it's a very racially charged city. There's a big history yes. of segregation yes. and violence. Uh, how does that play out in you and your husband's life? Well, I used to tell myself, which is a lie, that I had no blind spots when it comes to race. That you know, I'm just this this woke kind of guy. Uh, you know, my my past uh, partner was a, a black man also, so I, I I I'm used to it. Well. He's opened my eyes and I've created some pain unknowingly and unpurposefully. Un I'll, I'll share just a couple of stories. We were, and I get emotional sharing these stories because I don't ever want to be hurtful. Yeah. Uh, we were walking in Humboldt Park, which is, can be a, used to be a very challenging area. And Richard and I were walking hand in hand. And uh, we were by his condo. And this white man, probably, I don't know, 40 years old, 45 years old, walks past us. And I'm not doing anything. Okay. We're holding hands, holding hands. We're continuing our walk and two black kids with hoods on between 18 and 24 begin to approach us. I grab my hand, take it away. 
from Richard and continue walking. Well, these kids didn't do anything. We would continue walking. And Richard said, Rick, what was that about? Well, I was worried about gay bashing. I was worried about gay bashing from black men. They, they, they were so racist right there. Okay. And, you know, Richard explained that he went through that for a lot of his life. People would see him as a black man. They'd cross the street, afraid of, of walking by a black man. So I've had many life lessons like that to learn to look at my blind spots. And to my husband's credit, he's very gentle and loving with how he'll confront me. So I don't have that, hopefully don't have that right fragility that I know that a lot of my peers can have, although I do have it sometimes. Yeah, but it sounds like you're having those conversations regularly and you're doing it in someone who you feel safe with, who's on your side, Yes. right? Like that, yeah, you can make a mistake and you can have these implicit biases, but ultimately this person still loves you, right? It doesn't change the fact that you two love each other and that you're in it together and you want to improve and grow, you know, as a couple and as individuals. Yeah, I did have... And then as open as I'd like to be, I had a client of mine, uh, one of the very few clients that I referred after just a couple of sessions, uh, white woman, uh, very evangelical, uh, started seeing me for therapy. Uh, her daughter had a personality disorder, and I'm highly per- specialized in personality disorders, so she absolutely loved our work. And uh, we were doing sessions in my condo given, given covid and uh, she had to use the bathroom, and it's all professionally set up, and it was fine. Well, another time she used the bathroom, and she had to go through my bedroom because my other bathroom was under construction. And she saw a picture of my husband and myself. And she sits down and she says, I, I, I'm feeling deceived. What's going on? I said, what are you talking about? And I, I realized what happened. She goes, well, I saw a picture of you with a black man. And she said it like that. I said, well, that, that black man, yeah, he's very significant in my life. She goes, wait a second. I thought you were straight. I said, well, I've had three kids. I was married 18 years to a woman, and I'm openly gay. I don't hide that. And my husband's a black man. She felt betrayed by me and started using the N-word. And really? one of the, yeah. Wow. yeah and, I, and, I, and I said, you know, I think this is wonderful. This is coming up. I said, I'm, and I know my strengths as a therapist and my weaknesses too. I said, I'm losing perspective to treat you objectively. I have some names for you of people who could, oh, no, we have to work together. Or you'll, I could sue you for abandonment. I said, well, that's good, but I, I've lost all objectivity. So I, I did it in an ethical way, referred her, gave her some names of people who could treat her, but I was unable to. Because every time I saw her after that, we did the two or three more sessions, I felt my own rage come up. And that's, you know, that's not how I operate as a therapist. I usually feel tremendous um, empathy, tenderness, and love for my clients. Yeah, I have no idea how you didn't just like Decker right then and there. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it took a lot of work on a lot of work, and I also realized it, it was it was her own racial stuff that had nothing to do with me. And I, I, then I felt sad and developed compassion, and empathy once she left, but I couldn't see her anymore. One of the for few sure. people, one of the few people I ever referred out. For sure. No, it's really tough. I mean, yeah, I had a client that was anti-Semitic and started like mm. reaching a lot of that. And I had the very similar experience to you where I was like, I can't, you know, like I just, I'm too angry. I feel too minimized. I feel too kind of like, you know, oppressed, I guess, or hated on that I could no longer be objective. Um, I actually ended up not 
disclosing that I was Jewish because this person uh, was violent, right? This person seemed like mm-hmm. very dangerous and I was afraid that they would, you know, come after me. Uh, so I had to figure out another reason to refer them out. But it's wild when that stuff comes up in the work I, that we do. Let me, let me share a quick story. I had another client, uh, an attorney, who referred his son to me who was uh, uh, 19 years old. I didn't evaluate from his son. Son was solid. He was coming out as being gay, et cetera. And the father started seeing me because, because Rick, we got to get my son in conversion therapy and so on and so forth, of course, which I don't believe in. And the father eventually did his own work where he was able to look his own internalized homophobia, where I put him in a group with three other gay men. They became brothers to him. And he realized he was just projecting his own fear. So yeah. that, that's a nice ending. That is a nice ending to that. And it, it's a way that you intervene to connect with a community that can love him. Right, exactly. Right, that you can feel camaraderie with and brotherhood with. Exactly. And it, to his credit, because he said, I, I realized I had homo- homophobia, put me in a group with at least one or two other gay men. And, and I gave him a lot. And he did a lot that's of great work. Yeah, there was. Brave. So I gave him a lot of credit, a lot of credit. That's really great for him to be able to do that. Um, so let's start to move into our commercial break now. Sure. Um, so in the next segment, we'll be talking about advice that you have for people that are in a similar situation. You know, Absolutely. someone that's, that's keeping a big secret, someone that is afraid of their dark side, you know, someone that is doing that self-punishment way. So if you're listening out there and you're feeling some resonance with some of these stories that Rick is telling, stay tuned so that we can hear what you might do, what might help, what help to get him out of it, or what might help to get you out of it, or at least move the needle a little bit. Um, if you want to hear more from Rick, you know, if you want to have him back for another season for a panel, just shoot me an email um, at podcast at mark azulecom I'll send anything I get to Rick directly if you want to contact <laughs> him. Um, if you want to hear more, we want to hear some feedback and the impact of this episode will have on our listeners. So stay tuned, everybody, and we'll see you on the other end of the commercial break. Thanks. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are the experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azoulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azoulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azalay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azalay.com. Now back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to our final segment. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay. We're sitting here with Rick, and we were talking a little bit over the commercial break that he has another story he'd like to share with the listeners about a time where his children went to a gay bar. Rick, do you want to yeah. tell them what that's about? Sure. So, and, and my challenge when I share the story is not to cry. So my son, Justin, when he was 21, said, hey, dad, you know, I'm 21. Let's go to, let's go to the bars. And so, and with his friends. Because the way I heard that is, okay, dad, you'll take me and my friends and you'll pay for everything, which I love doing. So I, I, as I love doing that. He's got like six or eight buddies that have been in, in his life and I've been in, in their lives since like fourth, fifth grade. So I said, sure, Justin, we'll go to Lincoln Park, which is a very straight area. He goes, no, dad, we're going to go to your bars. I said, what do you mean my bars? Because no, dad, the guys want to go with the gay bars with you. I said, okay, let me talk to their parents first. So I call the parents, hey, Rick, have a great time. You know, gay bar is your thing. And again, I'm totally out at this point. So we went to the gay bars, had a wonderful time. And his best friend, Jason, says to me, hey, Rick, there's, there's something that all gay guys haven't done yet. I said, what, what are you talking about? He goes, well, we got we to gotta dance. I guess, Jason, you're all straight guys. He goes, no. So we found a, a gay bar that has dancing. They formed a circle around me, held hands, and they said, Rick, we want to talk to you about something. When you were divorced, you would worry if we would come over. Every Sunday, you'd have pizza for us, other appetizers. You'd watch one football game with us and give us our space. We'd go in the basement and do our thing. You were worried when we, when you come out as gay, if we would hang out with you. We're in a gay bar dancing with you. We love you. Situations like that validate it's all worth it. Yeah, And these days, I wouldn't trade it. And so not having secrets to my kids, my husband, my world is so freeing. And, and these days, in fact, I play in a gay softball league. And that, that same friend, Jason, uh, we coach the team together. We, we play on. And Jason's straight. We're, we can have a couple straight guys per quota on the gay <laughs> team. But uh, no, so that's wonderful. But so I want to make a recommendation. Those of you who are parents and you got a gay son or daughter, ask them to go to a gay bar with you. I cannot tell you how therapeutic that is, believe it or not, because then you would go, if, they, if they're into gay bars, you go into their environment and see what they go through and to be with some of their people. It's a gift. Anytime my straight friends would go to a gay bar with me, it felt so lovely and wonderful and healing. So I can't emphasize that. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah. I mean, that's such a heartwarming story. I was feeling some of that as you were talking, you know, of them. Well, one of you being accepted for who you were. Yes. And also the the courage on their end and just yes. the sentimentality to plan that and to execute that and to surprise you with that. It just shows how much you must have really meant to them. Right. And, and yeah. how important you were to them. Um, that they could break out of their own shell and break out of what maybe made them a little bit uncomfortable in order to be there with you. I mean, what a powerful statement. Well, Mark, thank you. Thank you for noticing the, the empathy you have for even them is wonderful. I, I really appreciate seeing that in you too. 
And I, and that, I think your clients are very lucky to have you as a therapist because you really have a gift of noticing people. So I want you, I want to acknowledge you for that. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's just those moments like that where both, both parties, right. Are going out of the norm to try to connect and both are pushing their comfort edges, right. You and those friend groups, like those are the moments that make life worth it. Right. Those are the moments that as humans, we can show up as compared to so many people that are just, you know, we get so shut down. We get so afraid. We get so anxious. We get so depressed. We live in such narrow boxes. And I just, I just love that story so much because well, thank you. in those moments, the boundaries broke down, right? And you right. were able to be with your son's friends in a way that was just heartwarming. You know? And I give, I give the, their friends' parents support too, because I, I made yep. sure it was, it was okay with all the parents and, and they were, they were great with it. Yeah. I'd like to talk about the recovery process and what other people can do. Um, so I run a lot of groups, uh, relationship groups. Uh, if you can find a good group for yourself, I strongly recommend it. Uh, 12-step groups are helpful too, from Sex Addicts Anonymous to AA to other 12-step programs. I think it's really important if you have secrets to talk to people. Talk to people you can trust because being vulnerable is so important in relationships and just our relationship with ourselves. because we begin to tell ourselves lies. And if you can get some feedback from people you trust and respect, that's invaluable. It doesn't have to be a, th- a therapist necessarily. It could be, it often should be, but just people you trust to get feedback, how they experience you, what thoughts or judgments they have. I think it's, it could be so healing. Yeah, I'm associating to one of the things you did. I think it was at one of the marathon groups that I did with you, where it was this hot seat exercise where you would yes. put someone in the center and people would say all their assumptions about them. Can you share yes. a little bit about that exercise and how sure. you came up with that? One thing that I've noticed people craving is to be noticed, to be recognized, to be seen. So, But oftentimes we have assumptions about who we are that can get in the way. So what I do is call these feeding frenzies. What do you see about me? What do you love about me? What do you notice about me? And it's a way of just being given to. You know, oftentimes we're often given to on holidays, on birthdays. I'm often, believe it or not, called into companies to set up uh, programs where people can feel acknowledged and seen more. Now, on one hand, I love doing that. On another hand, it's very sad we've got to do that because there's... There's a term I'd like people to, 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 to think of, and it sounds so narcissistic, notice me. Just notice me. And if we go through life, this is what I notice about you. It could be so helpful for yourself and other people to, to simply acknowledge this is what I see in you. This is what draws me to you. This is why I get excited when we're together. How often do we forget to acknowledge each other? How often do we forget to simply thank each other for giving to each other and being grateful for what you have? My husband and I, I'd say twice a week, talk about how grateful we are for our relationship, how blessed we feel. So acknowledgement to each other and ourselves are so important. Yeah, tell me more about that because I know you said the word forget. The way that I see in my clients and frankly also in myself is it's fear. Like we're afraid to say that or there's a big emotional block to say that. Have you, have you noticed yeah. the work that you've done? Like yeah. what gets in the way of saying stuff that like, yeah, I really appreciate you. really enjoyed our time together. Yeah. Well, well these days, sometimes it can be taken the wrong way. Okay. Um, if we say you miss someone or you look good today, or I care about you, you know, unfortunately we have to worry about sexual harassment claims, unfortunately, 
But other times, it's simply a fear of intimacy. You know, I feel I, I, I've seen so many people so afraid of being intimate, yet craving at the same time. Uh, and with that intimacy is often fear of being left, fear of abandonment, uh, fear of being overtaken, a lot of fears. And that's what therapy is about. And that's why having a good, solid therapist that, that does their own work is really important. One thing I, I do say, if ever your uh, our guests go into therapy who are listening, make sure you interview the therapist. Make sure the therapist either was in therapy or is in therapy. And if not, run out of there. It's my own, I know it's a very strong judgment as I'm saying it. It's really important. All my clients know that I do my own work and I practice what I preach. Oh, yeah. I tell my people the same thing. I think that's incredible <laughs> advice. Uh, I think that's like a really good litmus test of does the person, yeah, practice what they preach. Do they, are they doing this work too? Do they know what it's like to be you as a client? Because it's right. a very different experience sitting on the other side of the couch. Yes, yes. Are there other tips you have for people that are listening, maybe about finding a therapist or overcoming the shame that you've talked about? Well, interview therapists. And if you have an addiction, make sure they know about addictions more than just theoretical. Uh, I know there are some wonderful therapists that don't have addictions that can work with addictions. I myself am more comfortable working with therapists who are in recovery. And I'm not negating there, there are some good therapists who understand theoretically, but it's a little bit of a difference. Um, I've, again, I vote for a therapist who's very interactive. I want a therapist who can talk about the relationship and the here and now. People crave being held. And if a therapist is not going to talk about their relationship with each other, they may not feel as held. There's a time and place for assignments, but there's a time and place to do interactive, what I call work, interactive process work. Um, I believe in journaling. I think journaling is really important to get outside our thoughts we have within ourselves. Um, 12-step meetings can be very helpful. Uh, reaching out to family and friends. Any way to be vulnerable in a safe way, good group therapy. Again, I'm a, I'm a group person. It is really beneficial. Yeah, the here and now work. I mean, that's a big part of how I work and a big part of how you and I work together, yes. which is critical, right? Because the idea is that any of these patterns that get played out in our lives are going to play out in the therapy. Yes. And if the therapist is well-trained and they know what they're doing, you can talk about those things. And they're not going to take it personally because they know that that is what it takes to heal, is to see it playing out and to start to work on it as it's happening right here and now. So a third, another 30-second story. I have a woman in group. When we have people in group, um, I have them sit and just listen for the first hour. This new woman was in group, and this other woman was enraged with me about some things, was just angry at me, and just, just some great anger work. And when this woman got done with her anger work, the new client said, oh, I'll make up a name. Sarah, are you leaving group? You're so pissed at Rick. And Sarah looked and said, I've been in this group four years. I'm here because Rick can take my anger and doesn't shame me, doesn't beat me up, can listen to what I'm saying. Unlike my father and authorities, it's the exact opposite. I'm here because he can deal with the anger. So if you have a therapist who can't deal with anger or intimacy or is, is poor with boundaries, that's a red flag. I don't know if that's helpful, but we, we've got to be able to deal with all the emotions. Yeah. And we do that by feeling it in ourselves, right? And expanding our own ability and living right. that life where we can live more emotionally uh, charged, maybe the wrong word, maybe emotionally fulfilled lives where there's more going on and we're not living in that narrow band. And I'll often talk for my clients. I have a, a client, he's with me about four weeks, uh, an attorney, pretty severe sex addict. And I talked for him uh, for about one minute about his experience. 
he burst into tears. And what I said was, nobody knows my loneliness, my darkness. Nobody knows every time I act out sexually, how I feel suicidal. Nobody knows how I feel like a piece of crap, how I feel like I've got dirt all over me. Nobody knows how I deserve to be alone. And I came on very strong like that. And I asked, I, I said, what do you feel for me? He goes, oh my God, you're in my head and my heart. That's why I tell myself every freaking day. Thank you for noticing me. And I said, do you feel attacked? He goes, oh my God, the opposite. I feel understood finally. Yeah, somebody finally gets it. They finally get, uh, you know, those dark parts of the soul. And it just, it always blows my mind, man, of how common those things are or how yes. universal those experiences are, even though in the moment they feel so lonely and they feel so extreme and they feel like, you know, you think that nobody has ever felt this way. But the more I do this job, it's like, that's everywhere. Well, also language. Rarely will I ask a new man about their sadness. I'll, I'll ask their, uh, the, my new male clients, tell me about your pain. Tell me about your intense pain. Because that men will process. Eventually, they'll talk about their sadness. But there's got to be real trust because for men to talk about sadness is exceedingly vulnerable. Oh, yeah. I mean, grief is the hardest emotion for me to feel. That's yes. the toughest one. I can do pain because it's like I'm tough, you know, I'm out there yeah. fighting and I got wounded. I got shot. I got the right. purple heart. You know, I can do anger very easily. You know, um, grief is tough. So can I tell people how to get hold of me at this point or you tell me? Oh, for sure. Yeah, sure. go ahead. I was going to cue okay. you into that. Oh, yep. okay. Let, let people know how they can find you. Okay. It's rtivers, R-T-I-V-E-R-S, 470 at gmail, uh, dot com 847 338-1283 or ricktiversandassociates.com. It's, and it's and is, is spelled out, ricktiversandassociates.com. I do make myself available. I'd love to hear from people, even to, to consult. Yeah, can you tell people about the different services that you offer? So I run uh, group intensives are three hours every other week, very high functioning groups. I run a marathon group once a year. It goes from nine in the morning to about one in the morning it, on psychodrama, process work, uh, very intense, intense. One marathon we've been told is worth between three and six months of intensive therapy. Uh, and, and I can... And I do work for with business and industry, especially with executives and healing narcissism. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's for a future episode. For well, sure. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, hopefully, this was an enjoyable experience for you. It was. And Mark, and a, thank you. And a great episode for our listeners. Um, for those of you out there listening, please shoot us an email, podcast at mark-azzo.com. Follow us on the social medias. Check us out on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Um, this is still a new podcast, so any kind of review that you can leave, hopefully five stars because it's worth it, uh, can really help this podcast get off the ground, um, sharing it with whoever you have. We really want, or my goal here is to expand the knowledge that Rick and I have in our industry to reach more people, to reach more regular people, people in business, family, parents, you know, people that don't have access to psychotherapy. That's one of the main goals of what we're trying to do here. So thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay for From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll have another edition of the program then. Meet triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters the same. Until next time.